0: Happy Easter, everybody. Everybody doing okay? Yeah. Good. Um, we have been, since we started, we've been going through the book of Mark, but we're going to take a quick uh, uh, quick side note out of the book of Mark. We're going to look at Luke's uh, gospel for the resurrection story, um, uh, and I'll just, just for purposes of recapping, right before... The events that took place in this scripture that we're about to read just before this was the the trial and the scourging and the execution of Jesus. And so we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, and we're going to read down through 24, 1 through 12. Um, And uh, it reads as follows: Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. "...who had not consented to their decision." The council that he was a member of was the Council of the Sanhedrin. This was the judiciary body that had tried Jesus and found him guilty and had presented him to Pilate. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of that council, but he had dissented on uh, on that opinion. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man, Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus... Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, uh, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. That's probably my favorite verse (laughs) in the whole Bible. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, seemed to the apostles, an idle tale. The the apostles are listening to the women recounting what happened and they're saying, we don't buy this. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home Marveling at what had happened, this is the story of the resurrection of Christ. Um, when, when I was a kid, we my, my father was a pastor, and we moved to a little town called Lancaster, Ohio, for several years. Um, and Lancaster was a lovely little town. It's a small town. It was mainly populated by folks that worked at the local glass manufacturing plant and also farm. Uh, farming families that, that uh, tended the corn and the cattle fields in the area So there wasn't a lot going on in Lancaster, Ohio uh, So my dad, as the as the local pastor there, he decided he'd bring in a little excitement So he called one of these sort of high-octane evangelists from Chicago A guy with some theatrical flair And he said, that, I want you to come down and I want you to help us put on an Easter production Okay? Well, so the evangelist comes down. Before long, he had convinced my my dad that not only should we do like a little measly Easter production, but we should do a full fledged outdoor amphitheater production that ran for several nights of the story depicting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We all bought into this idea. Uh, Before long, the men of the church started building an outdoor amphitheater in the pasture behind the church. The outdoor theater was meant to look like Jerusalem in the first century. So they dug a little hole. That was supposed to be the River Jordan. Uh, There was a little pond there. They uh, put a big pile of rock and and dirt over to the other side. That was Mount Calvary. They put a plywood facade up and painted it to look like marble. That was to be the temple. Um, The one logistical hurdle for this production was the ascension. How are we going to enact, reenact the ascension of Christ into heaven. Now, if this were an indoor play, we could just use the old uh, the wire and pulley system, you know, and, and you have Jesus ascend at the begin, at the end of the play. But since it's outdoors, we had to improvise. So the men of the church used their ingenuity and they built a fifty foot scaffolding out in the middle of this pasture they covered it in tree limbs and leaves. And the idea was that at the end of the play, Jesus would climb up the scaffolding in the dark, and when the cue was given, a spotlight beam would come on him. A smoke machine with a long extension cord would create the visual effect of Jesus ascending in the clouds, and that would represent the ascension. Now, in one respect, the scaffolding and the smoke machine and all of that was a stroke of genius. and In another respect, it was a disaster waiting to happen. If any of you have ever been involved in church productions they always have interesting nuances and details so the women of the church were no less enthusiastic about this production they sewed costumes for our 100 person cast which was everybody in the church plus their aunts and uncles plus their neighbors and a few stragglers. Um, they also painted the set helped to build the props church members lent their livestock to the production uh, we had a few goats, we had dozens of chickens, a couple of pigs, as I recall, a small herd of horses for our Roman soldiers, and we had an old gray mule upon which Jesus would ride to open the third act. Auditions uh, were held, men grew out their beards to look like disciples, the young men hit the weights to fill out their Roman soldier costumes, the women grew out their hair so they could look like first century Israelite women, and the local Payless shoe store sold out of every pair of sandals and stock. <laughs> Finally, it was showtime. I remember, I was a little kid, I was probably seven or eight, I remember peeking out from behind the set to see how many people were going to show up opening night. Now, it wasn't packed, I'll tell you, but there was a respectable crowd, even if it was mostly comprised of our friends and family members. Uh, The performance opening night wasn't brilliant, but it wasn't so bad either. I'd have to say that our enthusiasm probably exceeded our talent, but... The townsfolk were gracious, and they told their friends to come out and see the play. So the play ran for several weeks. It was called Jesus of Nazareth. It ran for several weeks. Crowds varied in size from 25 people to, to 100 or so on the weekend nights. Now, in perhaps an overabundance of faith, we had built the amphitheater to a 1,000. So <laughs> it was a little quiet up there on the stage, even on the big nights. And, of course, as with any amateur production, there were mishaps from time to time. Uh, For instance, one night, the young farm boy, and I think I told this once before, but the young farm boy playing Barabbas, the thief, uh, swan dove into the Jordan River. Um, He had a wig on so that he could look more authentic. So he dove into the Jordan River with a full head of curly brown hair, and he came out of the pond as a light strawberry blonde, which was sort of interesting for the crowd. Then there was the time, and this was one of my favorites, where the demoniac The demoniac came running onto the set, but he had missed his cue. Jesus and the disciples had already exited stage left. So the crowd is watching, and a man comes screaming and pulling his hair, runs to the middle of the stage, looks out at the crowd as if to say, now what? And then decides that the best course of action would be to do one lap around the set and then duck behind St. Peter's house uh, to hide. Then there was the night that Judas's body harness was not strapped on properly, causing his final death scene to take on an eerie realism. He was fortunate and escaped with only minor rope burns. But perhaps the most dramatic mishap, and the one that likely contributed to the beginning of the end of our church's theatrical career, involved the scene of Christ's ascension into heaven, the 50-foot scaffolding. <laughs> Everything had been running smoothly that night. The horses had behaved themselves. The mules had hit their mark. The demoniac came in on time and was healed. Wigs were fastened securely. And overall, the night had been a wild success. But then came the play's climax. The actor playing Jesus successfully climbed the 50-foot camouflage scaffolding in the dark and waited in the dark atop the platform with his arms outstretched. The smoke machine fired off a few puffs of smoke right on cue. The music swelled. It was Don Francisco's He's Alive, for those of you who <laughs> want to rock back to the 80s. Uh, the, 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 the spotlight shot its beam skyward, and sure enough, it really did look like Jesus, dre- dressed in glowing white robes, floating on a cloud 50 feet above the pasture behind our church. And that's when we heard the sound of tires screeching and the thump of cr- and the crunch of metal behind us. It turns out a local farmer was driving down the road behind our church that night, glanced out his window, and thought he saw the second coming of Christ. (laughs) Unable to take his eyes off the levitating actor, the farmer ran his truck off the road into a ditch where it came to rest with a busted radiator and a broken front axle. Fortunately, he was fine, but clearly not amused by the incident. So the following Easter, we decided to pass on the theatrics, Instead, we just hosted an Easter egg hunt after the Sunday morning service. <laughs> it was much safer. Christians love to celebrate Easter. All around the world, we do all kinds of crazy things, and we do it in celebration of Easter. I don't see any hats here this morning, but when I was a kid, the ladies would rock the hats, you know? And the guys had the the tie, you know the, the pastel ties and the suits, and it was, you know... I decided to put on, if you recall from a couple weeks ago, this was one of my peacock shirts that I talked about a few weeks ago (laughs) that I used to woo my wife. Um, So we love to celebrate Easter, and we should. The resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. It's the linchpin of our faith. It's the one event upon which the entire faith turns. The resurrection represents the triumph of hope, over despair, of good over evil, of justice over tyranny, of freedom over slavery, of joy over sorrow, of light over darkness, and most importantly, it represents the victory of life over the bitterness of the grave. That's what the resurrection represents to us. It's because of Christ's resurrection that we can truly say, O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your stain?" There are innumerable themes implicit in the resurrection, Uh, but today I want to briefly just touch on three ways the resurrection of Christ can affect your life if you'll let it. The resurrection has the power, and I'll just tell you what these three things are. The resurrection has the power to restore your courage, to renew your hope, and to redeem your story. The power of the resurrection can restore your courage, renew your hope, and redeem your story. Before jumping into the themes, I just want to point out a couple of the key details in the story that we just read uh, that merit a little bit further discussion. Number one is, notice who buried Jesus in the story. And I love this detail. Luke leaves this detail in. Um, Remember, just a few days before this event, before these events took place, Jesus had been surrounded by his closest 12. He had throngs of people trying to, to touch him. He had multitudes of people that wanted his healing touch, that wanted to be around him. He couldn't walk out in public. Just a week or two earlier, he could not walk out in public without being surrounded. But at the time of his trial and his scourging and his crucifixion, when it became apparent to everyone that Jesus was not going to overthrow the Roman government, when it became clear that he wasn't going to unseat Herod and establish a political and military coup, when it became obvious that he was not going to establish an earthly kingdom, and when it became apparent that he was going to have to suffer and die at the hands of those who hated him, his followers disappeared into the shadows. Where was Peter at his crucifixion? Where was James? Where was Andrew? Where was Philip? Where was Bartholomew? Where was Matthew? Where was Thaddeus and Simon? Where were they? These were Jesus' closest disciples. They loved him dearly. They followed him day and night for three years. But when it came time for the crucifixion, they became afraid for their lives. They were terrified. And they went and they hid in the shadows. Sometimes... Even in our own lives when things are not Turning out as we plan, When we like the disciples uh, are disappointed By the by the plan that God has for us We sometimes turn And tuck tail We sometimes hide We sometimes bury ourselves in doubt and fear And we run and we hide in the shadows But the, resurre- the resurrection Presents an end to this story That I think you'll find inspiring um, Jesus' burial Was performed by a man Who wasn't even mentioned Anywhere else in the Gospels except for this event. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, as I mentioned before, he was a member of the Council of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the judicial body that brought charges against Jesus. Unbeknownst to the rest of the council, Joseph of Arimathea had been a secret follower of Jesus. He had been following Jesus from afar. He had been meeting with him in in secret and learning what Jesus was all about. And we also learned from the Gospel of John that Joseph was helped in the burial by another member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the other... Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was also a member of the council. And these two men came out of the shadows and said, we're going to bury him properly. We believe in him. This, there's a few things that I love about this detail in Luke. Number one is, from a historical perspective, Luke names names. Luke does not talk about this story in the abstract. He does not place this story in a non-historical context and 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 create some sort of sort of uh, myth that we can all just just chew on. He names names Joanna, the wife of the administrator of Herod, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. these are real people with real families that lived at the time of Jesus's Death, burial, and resurrection. Luke was written 40 or 45 years after the events that it describes. So, to a first century audience that was curious about this miraculous story of the resurrection, Luke named the names. You can go back to Jerusalem, he was saying, and you can go ask Joseph of Arimathea's family. You can talk to Nicodemus' family. Tell us about what happened that night when you buried Jesus. I love that. You can talk to Mary Magdalene's family. In fact, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the epistles, 1 Corinthians, that Paul wrote Was written so very shortly after the resurrection It was written about 15 years after the resurrection And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says If you want to know about the resurrection There are about 500 people up in Jerusalem Who witnessed it And they're still alive Go talk to them I love these historical parts about the, the scripture Another detail that I think is fascinating about Luke is that this detail of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, this detail about them being in charge of burying Jesus, this is a detail that would not have been included unless it were true. And what I mean by that is, this could be an embarrassing detail for the early church fathers. Because instead of the early church fathers, the apostles coming and showing their bravery and showing their courage and burying Jesus, the story says that these two almost strangers came and buried Jesus. Luke leaves in these troubling and what could be construed as embarrassing details for the early church. Another detail that I love in the scripture is that the women run to tell the disciples and none of the disciples believe them. The disciples basically think, this is a fairy tale you're telling us. We don't believe this. This is another detail that's in the scripture that if it weren't true, this is the one that Uh, If you're the public relations department of Christianity In 45 AD or 50 AD You say, you know what, let's scrub that detail We need to have the disciples say Of course he's risen from the dead We knew it all along But they don't They leave in the detail that even the disciples Have their moments of doubt And I think they do that because They want us to be able to relate to that The resurrection is an amazing story It's a remarkable story And even the first century uh, Christians had a hard time believing it. The only reason that the the doubt remains in there is so that we can connect with this first century audience. Remember, some people might say, well look, that was the first century. They weren't very bright back then. We're 21st century. People were very sophisticated, we're very intelligent. You know, we don't believe in the resurrection. Well, remember, this is this took place 400 years after Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And while the disciples may have not had the technology and the scientific information that we have today, they knew that when someone was dead, they were not coming back. They knew that when a person died, he or she doesn't come back to life. They had the same doubts, the same reservations, the same concerns that you and I have today. You can almost see the cynicism and the sneers on the disciples faces. When the women came rushing back from the tomb And that's another detail And then I'll jump into the, the, the meat of the sermon But that's another detail That I think merits just a moment of discussion And that is that all four Gospels All four Gospels Say that it was women That discovered Jesus' Jesus's empty tomb Why is that important? That's important because in the first century In Jerusalem A woman's testimony was not deemed credible Women were not permitted to testify in court in the first century, in first century Jerusalem, so the fact that the disciples left that in, the fact that the disciples left that detail in, just indicates to me that it was true. If they were trying to create religious propaganda, they would say, "No, it wasn't the women that found it. It was the, you know, the most upright men that we know. It was the men of high reputation." But they didn't. They said it was the women. The gospels are gritty and they're raw and they're not afraid to leave the details that may have not been favorable to their acceptance at the time. The Gospels capture an accurate picture of humanity and demonstrate that the people who followed Jesus were just like us. Doubtful at times, cynical at times, fearful at times, hopeless at times. They were just like us. But also, they were capable of complete and total transformation by Jesus' resurrection. You see, the resurrection had the power to restore their courage, renew their hope, and redeem their story. And the resurrection can do that for you as well today. This week, my wife and I were playing with my son, Jameson, on a playground. Jameson's three and a half. I always tell stories about him. Someday, I'm going to pay for that probably. Um, We were playing out on the playground, and Jameson was climbing this sort of set of monkey bars that were over to the side. And I hear him call my name and this, this set of monkey bars went about eight to ten feet up in the air and I hear him call my name I was over talking to somebody on the playground and I look over and he's about halfway up and he's scared you can see that he's scared he's holding on to the bar and he's going dad dad so I walk over and I'm going to take him off the bars because I think he wants off the bars he doesn't want off the bars he just wants me to stand there to give him the courage to keep climbing He's afraid of falling off the bars, but he knows that if I'm standing there, he can keep climbing. The disciples were terrified. All of us struggle with fear, for better or for worse. Sometimes fear is a good thing, and sometimes it's not. But we all struggle, for better or worse, with fear in our lives. On Halloween, this last Halloween, a kid came to our door, I will never forget this, I wrote it down. (laughs) A kid came to our door, And I said, trick or treat. And I said, can you tell me a joke? And the kid was dressed up like some kind of weird horror monster, scary person. And I said, can you tell me a joke? And he said, no, but I have a quote for you. And I said, okay, great. Here's what he says. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. He was quoting H.P. Lovecraft, who is a horror writer. It was kind of scary when he said it. I almost gave him the entire bag of candy. (laughs) Because now he knows where I live. Um, But I wrote that, that quote down. The British writer John Sutherland put it this way. The fear of death is the mother of all fear. When it has been destroyed, when the fear of death has been destroyed, all other fears are therefore vanquished. All of our fears in life can be traced to the fear of the unknown, the fear of death. Fear is is, is just a fact of our existence. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of life. We're afraid of failure. Sometimes we're afraid of success. Sometimes we're afraid of commitment. Sometimes we're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of our future. We're afraid of our past. All of us experience one kind of fear or another. But the resurrection, when truly, deeply experienced and embraced, provides a spiritual antidote to our deepest fears. Just look at the extraordinary transformation of Jesus' followers after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, none of them had the courage to show up. None of them made their faces known in public. After they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, they became so bold and unflinching in their testimony that all of them refused to recant their accounts of the risen Savior, even when it meant their death. The, the, the history tells us that almost all of the early disciples were put to death for asserting their belief, that, or that not just their belief, their testimony that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. I, I won't go through the whole list, but Stephen, who in 34 AD uh, was stoned to death just one year after Jesus' resurrection, stoned to death because he refused to recant that he had seen the risen Lord. James the Great was beheaded in 44 AD. Philip was crucified in 54 AD. Matthew was killed with an axe in 60 AD. James, the brother of Jesus. I love James because James didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was alive. James was one of his brothers that said, we think our brother is crazy. But when he saw the risen Lord, he became the bishop of Jerusalem. He became one of the great church fathers. Um, He was also beaten and stoned to death because he refused to recant. His faith in Jesus. Matthias was stoned. Andrew, Peter's brother, uh, who we met on a fishing boat, he was crucified for refusing to deny Christ. Mark was also uh, martyred. So was the apostle Paul, beheaded in Rome. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas the apostle, the doubting one, uh, was killed by a spear in India in uh, 72 AD. Luke was hanged. Simon the zealot was crucified. And Peter, the one who had just... Ducked in fear and cowered in the shadows, uh, became one of the boldest leaders of the church after witnessing Christ's resurrection. Uh, he was crucified upside down. The resurrection is the antidote to your fears. The resurrection means that the ultimate source of your fear has been defeated. The resurrection is the ultimate triumph over the ultimate defeat. Tim Keller, the pastor, in Uh, Redeemer in New York says, Death is the last weapon of the tyrant, but the tyrant of death has been thwarted by the resurrection of Christ. What else is there to fear? When the fear of death and the fear of the unknown is vanquished, what else is there to fear? If you're hiding in the shadows of life today, if you're afraid to step into the fullness of who God made you to be, if you, like a child, are afraid to climb to the heights of your potential because of your fear of falling with no one to catch you, you I want you to know today that the resurrected Lord is standing right beside you, available to you, prepared to catch you should your foot slip from the wrong. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. Do not be afraid to take that step forward in life, to speak the truth in love, to deepen that relationship, to step out. Uh, And reach out to the person in need To honor your commitments To withstand temptation Let the resurrection of Jesus Permeate your mind Saturate your soul with courage And boldness Let the resurrection embolden you today Your savior has overcome death There is nothing, nothing for you to fear And briefly I want to say Too that the resurrection has the power To renew your hope It has the power to renew your hope There is a, uh, in San Francisco At the corner of 24th Street Mission In the Mission District uh, Someone stenciled, stenciled this Little quote on the sidewalk It says, your existence gives me hope Your existence gives me hope And it's become the fodder Of sort of blogs and the internet And discussions and art blogs And religion blogs Who wrote this? We don't know Who put this there? We don't know But it has inspired a whole number of people. Some people have a cynical approach to it. They say, well, what it really means is your your existence gives me hope. It means if you can exist, then surely I can exist, okay, because I'm so much better than you. But most people don't take it that way. Most people read this and they go, there's something inspiring about that little quote. I think it perfectly encapsulates what the resurrection does. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope. Peter is the quintessential example of this. The one who had completely lost his hope. The one that had, as we were going through Mark, Peter is the guy who insists that that this is going to be an earthly kingdom. He does not, he cannot fathom that Jesus is going to die. He thinks that Jesus is going to be a king, he thinks that he's going to rule and reign over Jerusalem. He thinks that Peter's going to be, he thinks he's going to be the right hand man. He thinks he is going to be Jesus' top soldier. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he still hasn't figured it out. He still has not figured out that Jesus is going to allow himself to suffer and die. So when the soldiers come, Peter thinks, this is it. This is the first battle of the war we're about to wage on the Romans and the Herodians. Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of the soldier's servant in the garden. And Jesus says, no, Peter, hold on. We're not cutting people's ears off. And he heals the guy's ears. And he, and he allows himself to be taken by the soldiers. Peter just cannot fathom this. This is so wildly unexpected. So much so that he denies Jesus three times after Jesus is taken. And in that sort of guilt and in the shame of having abandoned and betrayed and denied his Savior, when the women come back and they say to him, Peter... The tomb is empty. You can almost just see Peter's excitement as he leaps to his feet and runs to the tomb and looks in and marvels that there's no one there. Proverbs 13 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree is a tree of life. First Peter 1 3 says, In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. Of Jesus Christ from the dead And into an inheritance That can never perish Spoil or fade Our hope is in the resurrection Dr. Martin Luther King says We must accept finite disappointment But never lose infinite hope We might have setbacks in life We might have struggles We might have trials There may be the day when we see That what we thought or what we planned Is not going to work out On that Friday night when Jesus was taken and his body was crucified and scourged and hung on a cross and his disciples were distraught, completely overwhelmed, they had to have lost hope. But the resurrection provides an infinite hope. Some of you know what it feels like to be without hope. Some of you have lost people that you love. Some of you have suffered incredible challenges and difficulties in your lives Some of you simply don't know what it feels like to be filled with hope. But the resurrection has the power to restore your hope, to remind you that there is a God and that he loves you so much that he would send his son to suffer and die for you and that he would demonstrate his power by overcoming death and rise for you that you too might rise beyond the grave. That's the meaning of the resurrection. And finally, the last point I want to make is that the, the resurrection has the power to redeem your story. It has the power to redeem your story. You remember the the, uh, the evangelist that I talked about at the beginning, uh, the guy with the theatrical flair that, that, that got the, our whole production started? Well, when I was about 16, we had moved back to St. Louis, I was about 16. And maybe in an effort to make up uh, to my dad for the disaster of... Um, the play. He he invited me and said, you know, Brent, I want you to come up to Chicago. He was a pastor at that point. I want you to come to Chicago and I want you to, to give a little sermon to our congregation. Now that was a mistake, okay? Because at 15, I'm not supposed to be giving sermons to anyone. It took me, I'm 40 now. Now I can just start giving sermons. But but he says, you know, he, he says I think God has a call in your life and I think you need to come up and, and preach. So I said, okay, so I, he flew me up there. I got out the Bible. I put together what I thought you know, was this like little, neat little sermon. I get up in front of this congregation. It's a huge congregation. It's a huge church. I get up there, and suddenly I realize that actually none of these thoughts that made sense to me when I was sitting alone with my pen and my pad, none of them really make that much sense, actually. And I started trying to preach... This thing and none of the little anecdotes lined up, none of my illustrations proved the point that I was trying to make. None of the sermons really totally related to what I was saying. And so I kind of got up there and I mumbled for about 10 or 12 minutes. And then I kind of said, okay, and that's it. And I hung, you know, hung my head, <laughs> tucked my tail and and walked back. Well, this evangelist, to his credit, he got up behind me, took the pulpit, and he goes, I tell you what, wasn't that a great sermon today? And, a, and the crowd's like, "Yeah, yeah, um, not really." Um, and then he said, "You know, the way he said." And then he took my little theme that I had put put together, and he started adding some scriptures to it that that made sense. He started sharing some anecdotes, just impromptu. He was one of those old school guys that just got up and tore it up. And he and he and he starts adding all this stuff to it. And now my sermon. Which didn't make sense when I gave it Started making sense When he got up there and started re-preaching it He redeemed my sermon He pulled my sermon out of the quagmire Of the ridiculousness And he, and he made it pristine And by the end, the congregation is going Yeah, amen, that's right And I walked off the, that platform going Hey, that was a pretty good sermon You know Jesus, the purpose of the resurrection is to redeem the story of your life. There are chapters in your life, if you are anything like me, there are chapters in your life that if you have the editor's pen, you would just redact that chapter. You may tear that entire chapter out and throw it into the fire. There are parts of your story, parts of my story, that we just can't look back on with pride. There are things that we've done, things that we've said... Things that we've thought that we are deeply ashamed of. And we don't have the editor's pencil. We can't go back and change it. But Jesus comes along and provides an ending to our story that redeems everything that came before it. Everything that came before it is redeemed by the sacrifice that Christ made. I I, uh, grew up in a preacher's home. My dad was a pastor. His dad was a pastor. My mom's dad was a pastor. I grew up sort of surrounded by ministry. And at about 18, after my, <laughs> after my terrible sermon, no, at, at about 18, 19, I just said, I don't want any part of this. And I walked away from the church completely. I walked away from the faith completely. I don't mean like, ah, oh, I had my doubts. I mean, I rejected it wholesale. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in the Bible. I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was leading a life that was expressly in violation and on purpose of everything that I had been taught. Sort of in the back of my mind, my whole motivation was to say, I can do this without you. I don't need you. I can do this without you. And I lived in that way for many, many years. And it was not until after my father passed away that I realized that I had been fighting and that I had been violating and and rebelling against a God who loved me. And I began to realize that I did need God's help. I couldn't do it alone. I wasn't happy in my... my, it, it, It was interesting because when my dad died, for me, there was nothing left to push against. You know, he represented to me the faith. He represented to me God. He res- represented the Christian faith. And so when he passed away, I go, who am I fighting now? And God at that used, used that experience to put his arms around me and pull me in and redeem my story and bring me hope and bring me salvation and bring me love and allow me to, to feel courage again and to feel hope again and to know who I am in him. He transformed my life completely. I can't quite explain to you how... Complete the transformation was for me and still is. It's ongoing. Jesus redeemed my story, He completely transformed my life. It wasn't in a moment, okay? I'm not here to tell you that bang, there was a bolt of lightning and suddenly I was, you know, St. Brent. And I'm still not, I never will be. But something changed and He started redeeming my story one line at a time. We've all made mistakes. We've all muddled the lives of promise to which we were born, and none of us can go back and change our past. But the promise of the resurrection is that those parts of our stories that we'd like to forget, those, those parts that we'd like to do away with are washed away by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and a new ending to our life has been written. A story is only as good as its ending, and the resurrection provides a triumphant end to everyone, to every story, to every person who embraces it. And I'll close with this. Today on a hillside just outside of Jerusalem, there is a hollow shell of an empty tomb. There's a hole in the rock where our Savior was once buried. For some of you today, there is a hole in the middle of your soul. There's an aching, empty shell that longs to be filled. Jesus left the hole in the rock so that he could fill the hole in your heart. He is as close as a whisper from entering your soul today. Let him in. Let him in. Just let him in. You can whisper to him, Lord, come into my heart. And start the process of allowing this darkness, this emptiness, this gaping chasm in your soul to be filled. Let the promise of the resurrection fill you and change your life. Let it restore your courage, renew your hope, and redeem your story. There is a party going on today all around the world for those for whom the resurrection has transformed their lives. Don't be afraid to join that party. Come on in and join the celebration. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for the promise and the hope that our lives, too, can be restored and redeemed. We thank you, Lord, that our lives, too, can reflect the glory of of your spirit. You raised Jesus from the dead, and that self-same spirit can come and renew our own lives today. It can make our mortal lives immortal through your sacrifice and your resurrection. Father, we ask you today to give us courage. Help us to enjoy you today. Help us to celebrate you. Help us to enjoy one another, love one another, and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.